We're going to be in Daniel 8 tonight, so I want you guys to kind of read along with me. Again, we're doing a, a survey. I say that because, not because we're not going verse by verse, we're still going verse by verse. It's just we're focusing on the chapters in the book of Daniel that have um, prophetic significance, which most of them do. Some of them don't. A few of them don't. We're focusing on those prophetic chapters. And again, we're wanting to follow this model that Jesus gives us in Matthew 24, 32, and 33 of knowing what the word says about the events surrounding Jesus' return and then being watchful of the times we live in looking for those things or looking for things that are kind of setting those things up. It tells us in Matthew 24, uh, 32 through 33, Jesus says to his disciples, now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, the specific things he's talking about are the things he told them that would surround his second coming. When you see these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. So just like you would know when a fig tree was about to bloom because you start to see it sprout in the same way, you know that Jesus' return is getting near when you start to see these things that he told us would happen are starting to happen or the beginnings of them are happening. So we look at the word and then we look at what's going on in the world through the lens of the word. And just a reminder, going through the book of Daniel, a good outline for it is that from chapters 1, one through 6, you have a, a historical account of Daniel and his life in Babylon as an exile from Israel. He was somebody that um, was a prophet for God, but also somebody that was exalted in Babylon, put in the king's court in kind of a significant position and given favor. And... The first six chapters of Daniel kind of talk about his life there as an exile. And then chapters 7 through 12 of Daniel describe visions that Daniel was given during his time there as an exile. And the vision we looked at last time in chapter 7 happens somewhere between the historical events of chapters 4 and 5 after the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and then uh, before or during the reign of King Belshazzar who succeeded him um, in, in, um, before King Belshazzar dies and basically Babylon gets conquered by the next world empire, the Medes and the Persians. So the vision in chapter 7, if you remember, it was of four beasts that represented four kings or their kingdoms or their earthly empires, three of which have already come. Uh, the Babylon Empire, which was conquered by the Mede-Persian Empire, which was conquered by the Greek Empire. And one that has partially come and gone, even though it wasn't ever officially conquered, it kind of just self-imploded. And that would have been the Roman Empire, which what the Bible tells us is there's going to be another empire, a, a last world empire, if you will, that's going to rise up out of where the Roman Empire was located. And the Antichrist, this satanically influenced figure, is going to be kind of at the center of that last world Empire, And then now in the next three visions we see Daniel have in chapters 8 through the preceding chapters, they're going to give greater detail of the overall vision he was given in chapter 7, just kind of talking about specific parts of it in more detail. So uh, let me pray one more time, and then we'll start going through Daniel 8. I'm going to go through the whole, whole thing, hopefully, tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, just be with us in this time in your word. 
we know these things were written uh, to um, uh, for our benefit, uh, to change us for the better, to learn lessons from, but also to look forward to your second coming, to have an expectancy, seeing the things that we see in this world and knowing that your return is near. So, Father, we want you to produce fruit from these words as we hear them, as we see them. Um, maybe we've heard this before or read it ourselves, or maybe this is the first time we're learning these things. I love this chapter because it's just another great reminder of how the word has to be uh, your words in this book because you're the only one that could correctly, accurately predict the future, which is which th- happens in this book among many others in your word. So, Father, um, we thank you for your word and thank you that you've given us so many reasons never to doubt it, that it's all truth, it's all good, it's all from you. So, Father, be with us as we study it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, starting in verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, King Belshazzar um, was after um, Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. So, in the third year of his reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So, this is his second vision. Chapter 7 was his first. Verse 2, and it says, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So as with his vision given to Daniel in chapter 7, this vision is given to him sometime between the events of chapters 4 and 5 in this book while King Belshazzar was in power of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel either physically being in Susa when this vision is given to him, as it says there, or perhaps um, he's there just within the vision. Like basically, we don't know for sure. Could have been there on the king's business as verse 27 says physically, or it might have just been in this vision he was there. Susa was a capital of Persia, which would be in modern day Iran. So it says in verse three, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high. But one horn was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So in this vision, he sees this ram. And this ram has two high or long horns, one horn being longer than the other. But that one that is longer, that's higher, comes up or rises up behind the other one. It's almost like the other one was there first, and this other one kind of grew and went longer than it. Verse 20 telling us, And I'm going to skip ahead to 20 here just because it's easier. Basically, there's an interpretation for what we're seeing here, and it's easier to talk about it up front than you guys will understand what's going on. So verse 20 tells us what this or who this ram represents. It says in verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So basically, that ram represents the empire that was formed through the alliance of the Medes in the Persians, the Medes and the Persians being those two horns, which ultimately defeated the Babylonians. And this should sound somewhat familiar if you've been going through Daniel with us because it's talked about um, in different visions. He's kind of shown different visions of different things, whether it be beasts or a big statue, but they're talking about the same thing. It's, it's kind of getting reiterated because it was important for them to know this. And so this is... This ram represents the second empire that would come and defeat the Babylonians. The ram being a national, remember, this is written 
before the Medes and Persians actually rose to power. And the ram just so happened to be the national emblem of Persia, it being stamped on their coins. And I think we have a picture to show you if it goes up there, um, maybe. Okay, cool. So there'll be a picture up there that shows you kind of a picture of one of those coins that's sitting in a museum, and it actually has a ram on it. This was like coinage in the, the city of Persia. It'll go up there eventually when it goes up there. it is right there. And now we got a horrible echo. All right. Wow, I'm on TV. Okay. All kinds of craziness. Pray for this, the, the sound stuff. It's possessed. All right. <clears throat> so anyways, that coin was supposed to show you. That was a national emblem. The Bible predicted that accurately. Now, one horn being higher than the other, but coming up last, what that historically speaks of is when the Medes, Persians kind of formed this alliance. They were two separate countries, two powerful countries, but they formed this alliance to become even more powerful. And when they started that alliance, the Medes were by far kind of the the more powerful of the two. But as they kind of went and conquered, the Persians grew stronger than the Medes. So that's why these two horns, one of them is bigger than the other at first, but then the other one grows bigger than it because that's what happened historically with Persia. Okay, Again, the Bible accurately predicting this before it actually happened. Verse 4, And it says, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So again, this ram or the Medo-Persian empire appeared to be unstoppable as it expanded every direction except toward the east, overcoming any country in its path in the Medo-Persian Empire historically, in fact, took territory all around it, but it never made any major conquests over known nations to the east. You can look that up historically. Again, I'm just touching on this stuff, but you can look at apologetics books where people have really dug into this and they've looked at the history and the Bible accurately predicted these things before they ever happened. This ram appearing invincible by you know all accounts basically what's saying here until another animal or empire came on the scene against it and that's what verse five talks about it says as i was considering behold a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his his eyes he came to the ram with the two horns which i had seen standing on the bank of the canal And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So Daniel sees a goat now come on the scene from the west. Verse 21, again, I'm going to read this so you know what it's talking about ahead of time. Verse 21 says, and the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So Daniel sees this goat. Verse 21 tells us it represents the king of Greece and his empire 
which was west of Persia, which is where this goat is seen coming from. And this goat seemed to move without touching the ground. Or the idea is that it moved so fast that it didn't, it was like hovering almost, like just moving across the ground because it was moving so fast. And the Greek empire came on the scene historically rather quickly under the leadership of Alexander the Great, who thought to be represented by that single notable horn, as it verse 21 said, that first horn is the first king. So that notable horn is speaking of Alexander the Great, who was their initial leader that led them to greatness. And the Greeks' attacks under Alexander's leadership were also known historically to be strategic. He was kind of a strategist in real quick. He'd get in there and get it done, like get decisive victories really fast. Many of which of those attacks, attacks involved the Medo-Persian army in 334 BC, which was a huge army. You guys heard me talk about this last time. Like it's considered one of the ma- the largest armies in all of history. Over a million people is estimated. And the Greek army was way outnumbered, way smaller, but their strategy and their quickness allowed them to win those battles and defeat the Persians and the Medes anyway. Or as Daniel saw in his vision, the ram was easily and dominantly defeated by the goat. And the goat went on to become exceedingly great as historically the Greeks went on to become the dominant world empire after defeating the Medes and the Persians. Many people saying that Alexander was potentially the greatest of all time or goat, get it? Military leader, that term's used a lot today for basketball players and stuff. But anyways, that's what, he was the original goat, okay? Uh, Alexander going on to die at the relatively young age of 33 while his empire was at its peak. And then it was divided amongst four of his generals who ruled and reigned over four different regions of the empire, which are represented by the four horns, Daniel sees in verse eight. Remember, it says here that the goat became exceedingly strong, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Or basically, the goat, or Alexander, died at their peak, and then he is replaced by these four generals of his, or the four horns that we see come up. Now, an interesting historical fact to note, um, this was written by the historian Flavius Josephus. A lot of people have heard of him. He was a famous historical figure that... Uh, wrote a lot of chronicles of history back in this time. And he tells us that as Alexander was conquering nations southward, that eventually he came to Israel and notably Jerusalem with that same intent to conquer it, like he had conquered everything else. But that the, the high priest was able to captivate an audience or arrange a meeting with him. And the high priest showed him the book of Daniel, which was written several hundred years before he ever even came there. And he was so convinced that this prophecy was talking about him, that he was absolutely sure that the God who wrote this had to be real. And he backed off and he never touched Israel or Jerusalem again. Basically, he read the word of God and it changed his heart or changed his mind. thought that was pretty cool. All right, it goes on in verse 9 and it says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground. 
and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him in the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So out of the four horns, uh, they're replaced by this great horn or from the four rulers of the Greek empire that replaced Alexander the Great, a little horn or another leader emerges who expands the Greek empire's territory to the south, east and towards the glorious land. The glorious land, speaking of Israel, we know that because that same Hebrew term is used to describe Israel in multiple other places in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 20, verse 6, Ezekiel 25, verse 9, Daniel 11, verse 16 and 41. I'm not going to go to them, but those are just some of the instances where um, that term, glorious land, describes Israel. Again, good hermeneutics or a way to study the Bible, let the Bible define itself. When you have a term, if it talks about it somewhere else and defines it as something, then most likely it's, it's meant to be used that way. So it's speaking of uh, Israel there, the glorious land. Israel being close to the area of land that was ruled by a specific one of the four Greek generals. His name was Seleucus. This little horn thought to historically represent a descendant of his, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. If you guys know your history, he was kind of a famed famous, ruthless leader of Greece. And he happened to rule over the area of the Middle East in Syria and Israel's land as as part of the the Seleucid dynasty, or basically, I think it was his uncle or maybe great-grandfather, but he was a descendant of Seleucus. So this little horn we see here, it's different than the little horn that we saw in chapter 7, which spoke of the Antichrist, but it, it... foreshadows him or it speaks of him we'll talk about that a little more right this little horn mentioned here in daniel 8 uh was like him in a lot of ways in that antiochus the fourth also exalted himself as god one of the nicknames that he gave himself or that he took upon himself was theos epiphany epiphanies epiphanies which is a title that basically means god manifested like i'm god in the flesh okay or as verse 10 says, Antiochus thought of himself as great as the host of heaven, which is basically God. Uh, or verse 11 says he thought of himself as the prince of the host, or that would be the son of God. During his rule of Israel, and maybe you start seeing here how he's an awful lot like another anti-Christ, not Antiochus, but the things that he's saying as we've kind of gone through these um, prophetic scriptures and we've talked about the antichrist this guy sounds a lot like him during his rule of israel he demanded to be worshipped as god he put a stop to sacrifices at the temple or as verse 11 says the regular burnt offering was taken away he demanded that the jews burn all of their scriptures he didn't want any of uh, any reference to god being around he desecrated their temple by setting up an idol of the greek god zeus there thereby overthrowing God's sanctuary, as verse 11 says. Another historical account says that he butchered a pig at the altar in the temple. A pig, remember, being an unclean animal under the law. So he takes this pig, he butchers it, he smears the blood all over the temple walls, and then he makes the priests drink the rest of it, okay? Really ruthless dude, had no respect for God. And when it speaks here of the host or stars being thrown down to the ground and trampled on. 
It's most likely speaking of the Jewish people there because we also see those terms used in other places of scripture or the Jewish people referred to as stars of heaven in Genesis 15.5. And they're also referred to, or referred to as the hosts of the Lord because they were God's people. So they were the hosts of the Lord in Exodus 12.41. So it's talking about this guy that was ruthless. He persecuted the Jews. Um, history says that he probably killed over a hundred, a thousand of them during his reign. All right. So then it goes on in verse 12 and it says, and a host or Israel or Jews, that's what that's speaking of. And a host will be given over to it or this ruler together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression or sin. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. The it being this Antiochus. So this verse tells us that the Jews were basically given over to Antiochus or he was allowed to do what he was doing um, because of their transgression or they had unrepentant sin they allowed in their lives. History actually says, again, this is history, it's not scripture, so we we can't believe it fully, but uh, it's probably it could be right. History tells us that the first attack by Antiochus on the Jews came as a result of somebody coming to him with a bribe that wanted to become the high priest and they wanted to do it unjustly. So they paid him to basically come and get involved and establish them as high priest. All right. So that corruption, that sin is how he kind of got an interest in Jerusalem and Israel in the first place. All right. So because of that sin, God allowed him to, in a sense, clean house. So things could ultimately be restored later says in verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke for how long is this is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings in the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So Daniel hears some voices speaking to each other. Um, he refers to them as holy ones. Don't know. There's not enough information. Some people speculate this could be God the Father speaking to God the Son. Could be angels. Don't really know for sure. But he hears these voices, refers to them as holy ones. And one of them says to the other or asks the other, how long are the sacrifices at the temple going to be suspended? And how long is the sanctuary going to be allowed to be desecrated? And the answer given by the other is 2300 evenings in mornings. Now there's been debate over this text regarding whether, uh, 2300 full days is meant here or 1150 days, which would consist of 1150 mornings and 1150 evening, evenings that would add up to 2300. The reason being because, uh, under the Old Testament, there would be a morning and an evening sacrifice. And that was one of the specific questions, like how long are these sacrifices not going to happen? So if you took 1,150 morning sacrifices, 1,150 evening sacrifices, you would get 2,300, but there would only be half as many days, 1,150. Now, scholars on both sides have come up with historical timelines and events that would work with this prediction. So it could be either or. Those subscribing to 2300 full days, they start their timeline at the well-established date of the temple being 
cleansed, which happened in, on December 25th, 165 BC, at the culmination of what was called the Maccabean Revolt against Antiochus' rule. It basically was a Jewish revolt led by this guy named Judas Maccabeus. Um, and it culminated with the sanctuary basically being cleansed on that date and the daily sacrifices being restored. And if you work backward 2,300 days or basically almost 700 or seven years, not 700, seven years, uh, you get to 171 BC, which is the year Antiochus began his persecution of the Jews. Now, those that subscribe to the 1,150 days or slightly over three years, they start the timeline when the temple was desecrated and the daily sacrifices would have been stopped, which they get that information from uh, not a biblical book, but a historical book called the Book of Maccabees. Um, and then they work, um, or basically those sacrifices, again, they happen in the morning, in the evening, according to Exodus 29, 38 through 43. And then they end that timeline after 2,300 sacrifices. Again, you have the morning evenings, um, which is 1,150 days. And that ends up being between the time of the Maccabean revolt as well from 168 to 165 BC, which again culminated on December 25th, 165 BC, where the temple was cleansed and worship uh, started again. So either one of those works really well, amazingly well. That prophecy being written 350 years before Antiochus Epiphanes came on the scene and it being so accurate that secular scholars use this example in their minds to prove that the Bible cannot be real, that basically it had to have been written after all of these events happened, even though there have been manuscripts, original manuscripts found of the book of Daniel that have been dated before Antiochus Epiphanes was even born, okay? But they would say it's a fake because there's no way it could be this accurate. But once again, this is the proof that God's word is unlike any other religious document in that it is the only one that correctly has predicted the future and will correctly predict the future. Another thing that is supposed to give us assurance in this being truly the word of God. Amen? All right. So it says in verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened, fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So Daniel, he wants to understand this vision, uh, reasonably so. And he hears someone instruct Gabriel. Gabriel, we see in many different places in the Bible, is a messenger of God. Luke one nineteen tells us that he was an angel and God would use him to bring messages to different people like Mary. And he brings a message here, uh, an interpretation to Daniel. And Gabriel tells Daniel that the vision was regarding the time of the end, which has also caused some, some debate uh, over the years, seeing as how that terminology 
is usually used in God's word to refer to the events surrounding Jesus's second coming and not events that were fulfilled some hundred years before Jesus was born. But the easiest answer, I believe, along with many other different scholars to understand what is being said here is that there is the part of this prophecy that has already been fulfilled in what we call, or you've probably heard this terminology, a near fulfillment, basically the historical aspect of it that's already happened. And then there's also a future or a far fulfillment uh, in the other little horn that we read about in Daniel 7, or the Antichrist to come in the future, who in a lot of ways will be very much like Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus basically being a foreshadow of the much worse Antichrist that is going to come. And, first, and John tells us this in 1 John 2.18. He says, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And already many such Antichrists have appeared, or they've already come. From this, we know that the last hour has come. The fact that we've seen these other antichrists already come, like Antiochus Epiphanes, should give us assurance that Jesus' return is just around the corner because the other, the main, the last antichrist is going to be coming soon. Verse 20. It says, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So again, this is where he defines the interpretation. You don't have to wonder. There's no symbolicness here, or it is, it's symbolic of something else, but this is where the Bible defines what it is being symbolic of. Again, working from a literal interpretation is, is what I find to be the, the best way to approach scripture until it tells you that it means something else. And here it tells you what that ram represented, clearly, that it represented this media and Persia empire. And then it goes on to tell us what the goat represented in verse 21. It says, and the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. That would have been Alexander. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose. Remember, Alexander died. Four of his generals took over. They would be the four others. Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power as none of those four generals were ever as great as Alexander was. All right. And it says in verse 23, and at the latter end of their kingdom, or these four generals, when the transgressors have reached their limit, or when their sin is at its worst, a king of bold face, or the idea that he's fierce and brutal, the speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, one who understands riddles, or the idea is that he's cunning, shall arise. Okay? Again, these qualities, those qualities being true of Antiochus in his rule historically, but those also being true of what we know of the Antichrist that's talked about in Revelation, among other places. All right. So, again, this prophetic passage is speaking of both a near fulfillment in the history that was already fulfilled and then also in the history, in the future fulfillment that's going to happen when the Antichrist comes. Verse 24, it says his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed and what he does in destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Both Antiochus and the Antichrist being allowed to have power to do what they do by who? God, right? When it's not power of their own, it's basically God's using it to accomplish his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's allowing them to do this. The Bible specifically telling us the Antichrist will be empowered by Satan 
himself, Revelation 13. But Antiochus in what he was doing clearly was influenced by Satan coming against God and his people. Both Antiochus and the Antichrist also are going to appear to prosper and succeed in their plans, both having success in defeating their enemies and being allowed to persecute God's people. That is until God says enough and he intervenes and stops them. Here he stopped Antiochus and then he will also stop uh, the Antichrist. Verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Okay, so the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes in in the past was marked with deceit or his cunningness. He was full of lies and trickery to people. And that's going to be the same with the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians chapter two, nine through 12 tells us, about the Antichrist, this man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power in signs in miracles. All right. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Why? Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the, believing the truth. Some people look at that and go like, well, why? That's not fair. Why does God deceive them? Remember what it says before that. Because they refuse. All right. They refuse to love and accept the truth. They've had the choice to accept the truth, to repent of their sin, to choose forgiveness. And they absolutely refuse to do it. So God gives them over to their sin. And just... When I read that, I'm just like, man, don't we leave and live in a world today where people choose to live in deception instead of the truth? The things that come out of their mouths that are, because we have the Holy Spirit and we have been given understanding of God's word. We see these things for what they are, but they're just going along with them. They're deceived in, in, in because they refuse to believe the truth. And that's what the Antichrist is going to use to fool people into following him. Antiochus, he exalted himself as being great as God, making his own coinage and putting his face on it with that, that term Theos Epiphanes, which means God in the flesh, God with us, God manifest, even in a sense calling himself what Jesus was. The Antichrist will do the same in Second Thessalonians 2 verse 4. It says the Antichrist will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, which means there must be another temple that's going to be built. He will sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. And by persecuting God's people, Antiochus showed that he really was against God or the prince of princes, as verse 25 says. The same is going to be true of the Antichrist who will show he is against God by persecuting and killing God's people. History telling us that Antiochus did not die from a human hand, as verse 25 says, but he died by disease. Okay, And similarly, the Antichrist is not going to die by human hand because Revelation 19 tells us he's going to make a great mistake in trying to gather the armies of the world to come against God, basically Jesus, and Jesus is going to destroy him and throw him into the lake of burning sulfur. All right. 
So it will not be a human hand that is his end. It'll be God himself. Verse 26 says, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Or basically Gabriel tells Daniel, seal up this vision that he had seen, or in essence, keep it a secret because the near fulfillment is many days away, but the far fulfillment is way far away. That's in the future when Jesus comes back. Verse 27, it says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So at seeing this horrible oppressor that just like persecuted his people. I mean, this is Daniel's people, right? He's Jewish. So his brothers and sisters are getting persecuted. They're getting killed. God's temple, which meant everything to them because it was like symbolic of their relationship with God is just totally being desecrated. It just leaves him appalled and like, in a sense, feeling sick to his stomach at seeing this and not being able to understand fully why God would allow these things because basically God only showed him a portion of his good, pleasing, and perfect plan. He didn't show him the rest. He just, he had limited understanding of these, this future that was coming and it left him worried and sick. But him having questions or not being able to fully understand these prophetic plans of God in no way inhibit him from still being about the king's business as verse 27 says and i want to end on that point because here's the thing daniel sees this crazy vision he doesn't fully understand it but he knows enough of it that man this is horrible this is horrible my people are going to be persecuted they're going to be destroyed man i gotta be about the king's business i gotta be faithful i gotta be you know sharing the word of God, you know, speaking forth these prophecies God's given me, just doing the work the best I can to do whatever I can to prevent this from happening. And this was towards stuff that was going to happen way down in the future, because basically what Gabriel told him is like, keep this quiet, keep it a secret, because it's not going to happen. But that's not what we've been told, right? Right? You guys know Revelation. That's not what we've been told. Revelation 1.3, John tells us, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. We're the church, right? That's written to us. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. He didn't say seal it up and keep it a secret. He said, John, the time is near. Okay. And whereas Daniel again was instructed to seal that vision up, John was told in Revelation 22 10, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book for the time is near. We're living in the time that is near. And if that was spoken to John 2,000 years ago, you better believe we're even nearer now, okay? And reading this prophecy and knowing that Jesus' return is near should have just as a profound, even more of a profound effect on you in me, just like it did with Daniel. Whether you completely ever understand everything about prophecy or not, I'm not ashamed to admit, I don't understand it all. But from what I do know is that there are horrible things coming to this earth 
for understandable reasons, seeing how wicked we've we've become and how much more wicked we're going to go because we're just going in that direction. But there are horrible things that are going to happen. There's horrible tribulation. There's horrible persecution that potentially people I care about and love are going to face if they don't know Jesus Christ. The most horrible persecution or the most horrible suffering being eternal damnation if they don't believe in Jesus before they die, all right? And knowing that, knowing that we're not playing games, we're talking about eternal salvation here, right? That should make us, like Daniel, be all about the king's business. It should make us live lives that are serious for Jesus, taking advantage of every opportunity he gives us, knowing it could be our last, truly, because he could be coming back And we don't want anyone to go to hell, let alone we don't want anyone to go into the tribulation. But it should really motivate us, whether you know it all or not. What you do know should motivate you to just be faithful with everything God has given you to do for him until that moment when he comes in the clouds and we're called up or we go to be with him through death, which has no hold over us. Amen. Amen. So that's the word I want to leave you guys with. May it be said about us what it was said about Daniel at the end of that book, that we are about the king's business. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, help us be about your business. Lord, we're so thankful you've given us chapters like this to remind us that your turn's near, to remind us that we need to really hold to each of the words in this book, that it's all true. It's proven itself to be true, even predicting the future. And when you say that your return is right around the corner, that the time's near, we need to heed that, Lord. We need to not have this idea of like, oh, you said that 2,000 years ago, so you know who knows when it is. No, you told us to look up, knowing that our salvation is drawing near. Then we should all the more be doing it now. And the reality is we see the writing on the wall. We see the signs of the times that we live in. And no, truly, it could be any day you come to get us. And we want to be found those that are good and faithful servants, Lord. And we want to do everything that you've called us to, to take as many people with us, Lord. We don't want them to go down with the ship. We want to save them. So anoint us to be your witnesses to our family, to our friends, to our spouses, our kids, our coworkers. Everyone around us, Lord, may everything we do be with that intent of helping people know Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great evening tonight.